0: Welcome, everybody, to the first episode of the Chris Kiefer Show. How was that for a little intro music? Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you now, but there is a reason that we started off with the Jaws soundtrack for today's episode, and the guest of today's episode is Michael Choi, and Mike has always been someone that has always been willing to humor me in my Um, ventures and different projects that I'm working on and in the short while that I have known Mike I have reached out to him a number of times to seek his advice and mentorship but without further ado I will hand things over to Mike and let him kind of summarize his background and explain how he got to where he is today
1: sure Chris and you know thanks for uh, uh, having me on this um, program Um, it's been a lot of fun getting to know you over the past couple two, three years, um, when, as you mentioned, we first met on um, a business slash uh, a faith retreat, and that was um, a really interesting time that we spent together driving over there in the car getting to know each other, and, and the funny part about that, of course, is that uh, we didn't know that uh, we were connected through your sister who had babysat our kids and such, and we discovered that in the, in, in the car, so, uh, you know, of course, that led to a, a much more fruitful Relationship. A little bit of background on myself. You know, I'm a small town boy growing up in Canby, Oregon uh, here. Uh, Professionally speaking, you know, I cut my teeth in enterprise software. Uh, I work for a bunch of companies uh, in that space, Um, uh, a lot of small companies as well as some very large companies. Uh, The most notable one is probably Business Objects, which has since been acquired by SAP, but they did business intelligence. Software and I looked at worked in their planning division in a variety of roles that included both marketing, sales, uh, international expansion, and product management as well. Um, You know, as many great businesses uh, uh, get their start, we saw a big gap during all the acquisitions where there were customer needs that were not being met and were being were, were not being met and being overlooked by. Uh, these larger companies. And the customers were screaming for a solution that they had been sort of accustomed to, but was sort of dwindling away uh, in, in the new corporate environment. And so my co-founders and I came up with some ideas of how we could service that customer base and whether it's through some kind of, you know, it's either... Uh, uh, luck or intelligence or stupidity or what, but we decided that we needed to start a a software company to meet that need. And so that was the genesis of of a, a company we started called Axiom EPM, which essentially was financial planning, analysis, and reporting software for large enterprises. And what we essentially enabled very large organizations to do was to do their planning and replanning um, at a very sophisticated level very quickly. And that was something that was a huge challenge for most corporations. And the success of the business is a long story, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But that's essentially the uh, uh, the business that was most recently, um, which I left that business about 3 years ago. So that's a little bit of background on myself. Since then I've been working to help other companies, I've been working in the startup scene here in Portland, Oregon, part of several uh angel investment groups including one called Tai Oregon, uh part of a venture capital company called Elevate Capital uh here and uh have my fingers in a variety of different um organizations. So
0: That's awesome. So one of the things that you mentioned that I'd like to dive into a little bit um, more is the um, being an entrepreneur myself. And I think a lot of the people that I talk with, um, I'm fascinated by, there's kind of a, there's a point in business where things start clicking and there's always, you know, obstacles and challenges that you have to overcome, but early days in the business. um, And even I feel like, maybe before the business exists, there's the time in which you're trying to analyze, you know, do I have a viable business? What is the specific value proposition to our customers? And and knowing or feeling at least fairly confident in your guess that this is going to be something that can take off. And you really don't know the scale that it can become at that in those early stages. But what we're, you know, thinking back on that, um, talk a little bit about the, um, the actual conversations, if you can remember any that you had with co-founders or other critical people in Axiom prior to Axiom existing.
1: So I think this brings up a great question about, you know, what makes you decide that a business, uh, is worth, uh, pursuing. And for me, this is one of the mantras that I Take with me as I look at new startups um, in my capacity in angel investing and with venture capital firms uh, as well, and that is that uh, you know good ideas are a dime a dozen um, What's much more challenging is um, to to find businesses that already know that they're going to be successful because they already know the buying model, and I think that's that's one of the things that in the early stages of Axiom, we already knew. We knew who the buyers were. We knew the customer base extremely well. We were very familiar with the sales cycle and the ecosystem of uh, uh, of that particular marketplace. We knew of the problem that they faced. And if we had developed that solution, we knew who, who would buy. And so for us, it was a no-brainer. There was very little risk in the big scheme of things. There was execution risk to a certain degree. But we knew that people would buy if we came up with the solution um, that we understood. So we had sort of an uh, you know, unfair advantage, if, if you will. Uh, and I look for that in every uh, business or in every startup is that it's not just a, a great idea where it's a better mousetrap that you, you have to sell. But because you know the buyer environment so exceedingly well that it's a no-brainer, you, if you build it, you know exactly who's going to buy it um it's not that much of a of a leap of faith and that's what i felt like uh we had when we created axiom was we, we essentially knew that it was going to be successful if we could create uh the the solution that we knew so well mm. um so then, and then as you think of oh go ahead no go ahead and finish that i was going to say um and, and so that was b- before axiom was created but there are other inflection points that happen as well. When you talk about you know traction and that type of thing, and and that's the point at which, for us anyway, you know there's you know how do you get to critical mass? When do you know that you're you know that you can really start uh, escalating the growth curve and you know that type of thing? And for us, it was when we had those number of customers and those marquee customers, and the business model was uh, uh, fleshed out better. Uh, so that we could streamline and scale uh, our sales efforts, we knew what we if what to put into the engine, and we knew what we would get out. And therefore, you could put money into the equation, or you know, fuel on that fire, and you knew what you would get as an outcome. When you got to that confidence level, it was very easy to accelerate and scale at that point, and that's when you got that comfort level, and that you knew that the business was going to take off, and you just simply needed. Uh, to, to execute.
0: Mm-hmm. Another
1: piece that that was important for us that, that was sort of an indicator of success is when we began to be in a position where we didn't have to apologize for the size of our company anymore because we had enough customers to make us legitimate because we did a great job of looking big and providing uh, service that was uh, beyond what the big companies could provide, the kind of attention that they were uh, looking for. And because we had an offering that was so uh, tuned in to that specific vertical market. So, for example, at Axiom, our first uh, target market was for healthcare. Even though our, our, our solution was ideal for virtually any industry, healthcare was the one that we targeted. And so, when we would go into customers uh, and, and talk with them, the entire team, we would have a team of three or four people that would go in on sales cycles, and every single person there had a healthcare background, talked healthcare, uh, et cetera. Whereas our competitors would come in, who were SAP, Oracle, and IBM, and they would tout how they did, you know, these amazing projects for Boeing and Coca-Cola and, and, and other huge companies. And they would have people that weren't uh, specific to healthcare. And even though they were much larger, we would come in as a team, and we would practically, you know, we understood their business, and we would practically. Uh, Verbally in those meetings, explain how we would solve their problems, and say they knew that we were completely versed, and we basically prescribed the solution for them uh, already. And so, uh, when we got to that point where we weren't apologizing anymore, we could charge a premium for our solutions and above and beyond the 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 big players in the field. Uh, You know, we could go with, with that level of confidence. We had really figured out that we could really scale this business. And so once again, it became an issue of, you know how do you fuel that growth? How do you scale it without breaking it at the seams?
0: Hmm. So the other thing um, in in what you're saying that I think is a challenge for a lot of businesses is deciding, um, obviously you have to pick some vertical. Uh, you have to pick, you know what is it that you're going to specialize in? And a lot of times, deciding um the more important thing is deciding what companies are you not going to work with but how like how do you and again maybe this was obvious but you mentioned healthcare as one of your targets and maybe this would be a question for just when you're advising a startup how do you strategically decide how big of a vertical you should go
1: after that's a great question, Chris, and it's so critical to the success of so many uh, uh, early stage companies. Uh, a lot of people mistakenly think that you know we want the greatest number of people to look at our software as possible, or our product, whatever that product may be, uh, and, and that's our greatest chance of success. You're trying to create the biggest pool of people uh, possible, and that's usually the wrong answer. Uh, the more narrow you can make. The possible number of people that would buy your software, I think the better off you typically are. And what I mean by that is that if there's, you know, if you're trying to sell, in my case, it was software, but it can could be some kind of widget. And this widget could apply to, you know, 30 different industries. If you identified one or two industries where you had some level of experience from your past that you know, um, you know, that business a little bit better than others do and can tailor that product. And then sometimes it doesn't even have to be the product. It can be tailoring the marketing specifically to that industry. You stand a far better chance of um, gaining market share there. You'd rather, you know, win a lot of customers in a small, um, you know, uh, uh, market and use that as a basis to grow into other markets than trying to tackle all markets with a giant pool of potential uh uh, clients and not win very many of them and Mm. that has proven itself you know to be true you know time and time again
0: something that i have always found fascinating is um the people surrounding the entrepreneur him or herself that have great influence on the business succeeding or uh, or I guess not even that, just getting off the ground. Do you have, tell me about um, your, were you were you married at this time when you started Axiom?
1: Uh, I was actually, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but so was how, new, I was newly married. <laughs> right.
0: So tell me, uh, and I guess this would be just kind of, um, I don't even know what the angle on this would be, but how difficult was this or were there any serious discussions that, you had to have um, with your wife to say, you know, um, this is kind of a, a opportunity. We're pretty confident in it, but there's obviously risk involved. But essentially, you were you were you were quitting your job, right, to start this other job? That's right. Mm-hmm. That's true. So tell me about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, I think circumstances are different for for each people person, but um, you, you know, you think of the adage. Uh, That you've heard before, you know, behind behind every successful uh, man is a successful uh, uh, wife. And of course, today, we need to say that behind every successful person is a successful spouse. Uh, But, you know, that adage is very true. Um, If you have a relationship that is not as supportive, or is a bit more uh, fear based, then you, you might have some uh, troubles, I was very fortunate in that um, you know my wife was very supportive of the things that I was trying to do it doesn 't mean that she wasn't concerned; she was concerned about this new venture and what it would mean for her family and such um, but she was very supportive, and that allowed me the freedom to really um, you know I- I- explore what we could do for what we could do from a business perspective um you know without worrying about that side of the equation too much mm.
0: And then um, I guess the last question as far as Axiom goes, when do you feel like, um, was there a time or the period, maybe it was like a specific day or month or a client that you closed, when, when did you stop being a startup? Or when was it, when, and maybe it was early on, maybe it was several years in, but at what point was everything clicking? And now it's just kind of like, you know, pedal to the metal, pouring more gas on the fire and just growing. Or is it, you know, when did that happen for you?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I I can think of a couple marquee clients that really changed the mentality of everyone in the company. The first one was our sort of first real big client. You know, we probably had 10 customers. And again, this was the enterprise software space. And so up to that point, you know, we sold maybe $50,000 deals or what have you. Uh, you know, that was probably our biggest customer up to that point. Um, you know, we we're struggling to get people to adopt. And then finally, there was um, a company, a healthcare, a large healthcare system in New Jersey called Meridian Health um, that, you know, through a variety of different circumstances, including a prior relationship that we had with them and those types of things, um, we were able to convince them to you know take a chance with us, and that was a two hundred thousand dollar uh, account. It was the biggest one up to that point. Um, at that time, two hundred thousand dollars was a lot for us, and uh, but more than anything, it was a large health system that was willing to take a chance that we knew could be a good great reference for us. Uh, and it was the start of us being able to say, hey, you know, real companies <laughs> mm-hmm. are, are willing to take uh, a, a chance with us. And so that was sort of the beginning. And then everybody's mindset started to change within the company uh, because they're thinking, you know, wow, this we we can be real. Up until that point, there were a lot of, you know, sort of obscure deals here and there that weren't huge in size and, and that type of thing. So it left a question mark in everybody's mind, you know, will someone of substantial size actually buy this? Mm-hmm. And so that was the first, you know, watershed moment, if you will, because because a lot of it isn't just about number of clients. It's about what your team and what people in the company believe about themselves, because then they start behaving differently they start answering questions differently. They start <laughs> they start working differently when they believe that wow, this is real and this can can work. Uh, for some reason, it has nothing to do with work effort. It has to do with what they actually believe we can accomplish. And then the other moment was our first million dollar uh, customer. It was a company called Catholic Healthcare West at the time. I think they had forty three hospitals. Um, I, I think there were something like a a, a, a ten billion dollar uh, organization. Um, and it gave a tremendous amount of pride to everyone in the organization. Once again, it was a moment where they believed um, what could happen and what we could do. And it just created a different perspective. You know, it's kind of like in, in sports, the analogy of, you know, playing not to lose versus playing to win. Even though you're the same team and you're always giving 100 percent, when you when you're playing to win, something different happens. You play differently, you act differently, and it makes all the difference in the world. And that's similar in these watershed moments in organizations when people begin to believe uh, in what they can really accomplish.
0: I love the what the thing you just said. It has nothing to do with work ethic. Worth work ethic. It has to do with what the employees in the company believe about themselves. And so my question is, is it necessary for the founder or like you or the other executive members? to basically like, did you believe the whole time? Or was there also like you would put on a front of, we can do this, and then you go home at night and you're like pulling your hair out and stressing about whether or not this is actually going to work? Or is there kind of a, is there an underlying confidence that you had the entire
1: time? You know what's interesting about that is, I I think great leaders, Maybe it's out of foolishness uh, or ignorance, but they always believe it can be done. They always believe that we are right on the cusp of doing something great, and they truly believe it. Now, when we sold that first million-dollar deal as an example, was that a surprise to me? Sure. But did I believe the entire time that we absolutely can win this account? Absolutely. And that energy and that belief was infectious, and it goes to the people that are around you, and they believe that we have a real shot. My goodness, we we can get this deal. And then when it happens, you might be a little bit surprised, but you believed the entire time that you had a real and genuine shot at getting that deal. And that kind of energy and that kind of belief is uh, what makes all the difference. Because when you believe that you don't really have a good shot, even though you give it your all – everybody on that team will behave slightly differently. They talk a little bit differently. The energy is a little bit different. When you go in with that true belief that you know you can win this business, it makes all the difference in the world.
0: So you're saying um, you always believed... That it was possible you know yeah you can still be surprised maybe you didn't know it was going to happen so quickly or with the client it was or in the way that it went about it or whatever but do you enjoy or or is it necessary to enjoy kind of the struggle of the doubts of the people that are looking up to you
1: um you know you hear a lot of stories uh like that and for me that wasn't a big motivation to prove people wrong so to speak Uh, because they doubted in me or what have you Um, uh, that may or may not be an important, you know, motivation or driver for, for others. But for me, it it really wasn't for me. It was really the excitement that we could actually achieve something maybe that, that people would be surprised about or or, or what have you. Um, And that was perhaps uh, motivating, but it was this desire to do something great, the desire to do something real that all these other people could get excited about and jump on board with uh, as well. And I think that's a a great – in hindsight, I think that's a great motivator because what the perspective – that perspective um, puts you in a position where you're trying to bring everyone up. You're trying to get everyone excited about that vision or that goal or what have you. The other, to me, is a little bit more personal – and egocentric the other is a bit more you know i want to do this because i want to prove these other people wrong it doesn't imply that you're you have all these other people that are working alongside you and with you maybe they don't have that same that same motivation so um you know i'm not sure if if that nails it on the head or, or hits that on the head but it's um yeah, I'm not sure that that's a, a huge motivating factor for a, a lot of people uh, and, and, and is related to success or not.
0: So one of the things that you I want to go back to the comment you made about out of, either out of foolishness or ignorance, uh, leaders always believe, great leaders always believe. Do you think that um, is there anything else in addition to that that you think makes a good
1: leader? Um, yeah, I think one of the key things that I learned um, about good leaders is that they're not bosses. They're not people that tell people what to do. They're not necessarily the the, the people that, uh, you know, with their authority that everyone respects. Um, occasionally, you'll see a strong leader that has those qualities but usually the great leaders are those that makes everyone else feel like they're the most important person in the room and and you know and, and you're just someone who's facilitating that you're you're the, the the one that has the excitement and the energy um that people are attracted to i think you've heard Um, I I think people have said before, like, you know, why would someone want to work for me? They were proposing that as part of the solution or or, or what you should ask in order to figure out how to motivate people. Right. Why would someone want to work for me? And to me, that's absolutely the wrong question. You should be asking, why would someone want to work with me? Because if you ask, why would someone want to work for me? It's because I have the answers. I'm more knowledgeable than them. Um, you know, you know, I'm smarter, I you know, whatever the, the, the thing is. But it requires you to be better than them. And it requires them to acknowledge that or to believe in that in order for that to work. But if you ask the question, why would someone want to work with me? Then it creates a totally different set of answers. Why would someone who's my peer want to work with me rather than for me they would want to work with me because they think i'm smart and have some capabilities i may not have all the answers but he believes in what he's doing he's passionate about it Uh, he has high energy he's positive he's a great guy you know and i believe in a lot of the things that he's saying and i believe that i'm a strong part of that solution and i can see in his eyes that he believes that i'm really smart really valuable and that I can bring a lot of value to the table, and we're going to solve this problem together. Mm-hmm. That's the change in perspective when you ask not why would someone want to work for me, but you ask why would someone want to work with me? I and that. I think that's the key piece that is different about good leaders. Now, of course, there's plenty of exceptions. You know, the Elon Musk of the world, the uh, <laughs> Steve Jobs of the world. Uh, you know, that got people to follow for very different reasons. But those are rare exceptions. And for the vast majority of startups, um, you know, their conditions are not the same.
0: Do you think that, and maybe this, you can answer this for yourself first, and then in general, are these um, traits and the beliefs and those, like the way that you're asking those questions, were you born with this mentality or... Or is this a combination of nature versus nurture? Um, But how do you, like, can someone listen to this and say, like, ooh, that's a good question. And then, like, you know, start trying to become a leader. Or do you think that there's some um, innate, like, leadership quality that is born in some and not in others? I think
1: it's um, a combination. I think you... Uh, maybe not born with, but at a very early age, um, you know, you acquire these skills that uh, that that lend themselves to being, um, you know, good leaders, uh, good people, um, person people, <laughs> or people persons. <laughs> um, but I think ultimately you can learn a lot of things or a lot of skills. I mean, certainly, you know, I I, I had. I think a certain amount of emotional intelligence, you know, coming out of college, let's say. Um, so maybe I had a little bit of a leg up, but there are so many things that I learned along the way that were exceedingly value and made all the difference. And so I think it is absolutely learnable, but you have a head start if you have some of these intrinsic qualities already learned, you know, through your childhood, uh, in, in, in formative years. So. And a lot of this is tied to um you know, this notion of emotional intelligence, which is, you know, sort of a um a buzzword these days, but it's so very true that the best leaders, salespeople, you know, what have you, uh have a high degree of uh emotional intelligence and self awareness.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask, do you think of yourself as um self aware?
1: Um, I think that's one of the m- most valuable qualities that I have, and I'd like to think that uh, you know I'm very uh, self-aware. But I, you know, the, the way that I I know that though is by seeing so many people that aren't very self-aware and the problems that they get into. Um, you know, you have so many people, uh, or let's let's talk about entrepreneurs, uh, very successful entrepreneurs. Um, that because of their success, they feel like, you know, uh, they know all the answers moving forward in another business. And so many second-time entrepreneurs fail. And it's I believe it's because of this hubris that develops, if they're not very self-aware, that they think a lot of the reasons for the success were uh, due mostly uh, to themselves. Were they more self-aware and if they were more emotionally intelligent and could really understand their role, their unique role in what made that organization successful, uh, they would be much more likely to be successful in their second endeavors because they would have that self-awareness that that lets them know what value they brought to the table. When you're not self-aware... You're not typically not very good at deciphering what value you bring to the table. Hmm.
0: Knowing your strengths and weaknesses.
1: Yes, and yes.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, one of the things that, and I don't. This was a while ago in a conversation that we had. You mentioned that you thought most entrepreneurs or just people in general. and I think you actually alluded to this earlier and you you kind of go down two different paths but how like describe what this is and kind of how there's this decision that is made and sometimes i would say unconsciously or subconsciously made um, for entrepreneurs
1: Uh, what i was referring to in that conversation was this notion that so many successful entrepreneurs come out and they tend to take two differing paths Those that are um, socially um, or not very self-aware and and perhaps as as a result, you know, have some egos that sort of block the the clarity on what value they bring to the table, Um, they tend to pursue routes that are more ego driven. And so they end up being these guys that are pretty typical. They buy the fancy cars and the fancy houses. And, it, uh, and uh, you, you know, they, they get a little full of themselves. Um, they surround themselves with, with people that feed their ego. Uh, they start dressing differently. Uh, you know, uh, they behave differently in meetings. Uh, when they talk with people, again, they're very ego-driven. And I would say, and this is totally an anecdote, you know, I see about half, maybe even a little bit more than half of the people go down that route. And then there's this other route that people go, people that you really respect, that has, that not only are they grounded, but they're really aware of what they're really good at and what they're not good at. Um, and they're more aware of the value that they bring to the table and what their strengths and weaknesses are. And that can be a humbling effect. It's empowering and humbling all at the same time. It's humbling because it lets you know that you weren't the reason, the full reason for your company's prior success. It's empowering in the sense that now you know what your real value is and you can put that value to play in your next business endeavor or actually it applies to life as well. And so you tend to see them make better life decisions that are less ego driven and more real values driven.
0: One of the things that I definitely that I would say is is one of the more self-aware analysis that I've heard you describe about yourself is understanding how the person that you are is because of your parents and you know they were influenced in their parenting styles by their parents and you know this never-ending chain but what were some of the key life situations that you were in or that they were in that affected your work ethic or entrepreneurial tendencies
1: yeah i think uh you know it's interesting when i think about the answer to that question i'm not drawn to one particular piece of advice or, or or what have you for me the benefit or the impact that they had was more in who they are, and it really it was a combination of both my my parents um, and I think it was that unique combination that really formed a lot of my thinking and my values and you know how I live uh, today and I'm extremely grateful for that. My dad always saw the glasses half full, mom always saw the glasses half empty, and so while she was the responsible one, the good One, Um, you know, if there are some good things that happened, you know, she might have been happy for a day or so temporarily, but she would always find something to worry about, uh, you know, no matter what the situation was. And with my dad. It was the opposite, you know, something bad could happen and he might be sad or down momentarily, but the very next day, uh, you know, he was exceedingly happy, genuinely happy. He wasn't fooling himself. He would you know he he genuinely was so grateful for the life that he had no matter what the circumstances were and so that was a great learning for me to say that wow you mean to tell me that you could have the same exact thing happen and two people perceive it totally differently and be authentically real not deluding themselves and feel about it differently and that's when i realized that so much of my circumstance or i should say my happiness was is is not so much about what happens to me, but about how I look at the situation, and, um, and and that is infectious. It it impacts my relationships and business as well. Um, in business, you can't just have someone who's always looking at things uh, as glass half full. You know, you do need the 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 discipline and the responsibility and all those pieces uh, in there. But I would argue that you can't propel yourself forward as an organization without someone who's leading that always truly believes um, in the the positivity of tomorrow.
0: Mm. One of the things, Nick, we're kinda gonna shift uh, topics over to um, parenting, if that's okay. <laughs> sure. One of the things I remember, and this was, I, I feel like this was probably a year ago, um, but you mentioned um, just the, and I don't know if you know the statistic. I've heard that you know basically, you know, whatever the amount of wealth is that um, a person or a family acquires in a, in a lifetime, the the ver- the next generations are you know affected, or or they basically burn through it very very quickly.
1: Uh, What I had heard from an estate planner is that it seems like it's well known within that community that you have the three generation rule, which is that the first generation is the one that really works super hard and and blood, sweat and tears, typically very poor and build wealth. And then that second generation um, sees, truly sees on their parents' faces the toil that they went through, not just physically, but emotionally. And I think that's really the important part. They see how hard it was in their faces when, you know, things go bad and their mother is crying and, you know, these kinds of things. Um, and so they get emotionally that impact. And so they tend to maintain the wealth because they appreciate it. You know how hard their parents work for it, so they don't squander it. Um, but their kids, so the third generation comes along and their second generation parents tell them about the value of money and how important it is to be responsible and, you know, all these kinds of things. Um, but they never see the emotional toil on their faces. And so that third generation tends to squander all the wealth. And so, you know, that leads me to say, well, I'm blessed to be part of that second generation where I have some appreciation of, uh, you know, the the value of what we have. But I know my kids are never, ever going to to, to be wanting for anything. And they're probably not going to see a lot of pain on on and struggle on my face and my wife's face. And so how are they not going to be the generation of uh, excess and of, you know, taking things for granted and squandering everything that they have? And that's a real challenge. Most people don't pay much attention to that and think that, well, if I just teach them how important, you know, money is or responsibility is or values, all those kinds of things, if I just teach them, they'll be fine. And I would argue that that's really challenging and that's really difficult because it has to impact them emotionally for it to really resonate. Um, And so that's the challenge that I see before me that I don't have good answers to. And, uh, you know, and I'm constantly thinking about this. (laughs) Mm. So, What do you think
0: the most important thing
1: is that you can give your kids? You know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of answers there, right? Um, It has to do with faith. It has to do with some of the emotional lessons that I've learned, kind of along the lines of what we just talked about with my mom and dad and the different, um, you know, attitudes that they had. Um, You know, I, I kind of feel like if they're self-aware and have emotional intelligence that's probably the greatest single gift that you could give them because then they don't have delusions about themselves or themselves they don't um you know typically that means that uh, whatever insecurities that they have they're they're well aware of and that's where people I think get into the most trouble when you have certain insecurities and you're not and you're not very aware of them it drives really bad behavior let's take egos as an example let's say you know, you feel insecure growing up that you weren't better than someone, whether it was because of wealth, athleticism, intellect, whatever it was. And if you don't have the self-awareness to, to to understand that as you get older, then the things that you do in life often will pursue making yourself feeling better about those particular insecurities. And so when we talk about, you know, that that, that entrepreneurship funnel with successful exited entrepreneurs and where they tend to go, I think that it's very much tied to that. So that self-awareness and emotional intelligence is is one of those key things, I think.
0: Mm. And then, and the last question I have on uh, just being a parent in general, what's is there been anything? Um, now you have is a you have three kids now, right?
1: That's right, eight, seven, and four.
0: What's been the most um, surprising thing? about being a parent?
1: I think the most surprising thing is how little control you really have. <laughs> you know, I, I was a, I was a pretty heady person um, growing up, felt like I had a lot of the answers figured out and such. Uh, probably a lot of people do. And then of course, before you have kids, you're always looking at other people's kids saying, oh, I would never allow my kid to do that. You know, those kinds of things and um you know it's amazing when you have kids how how little control that you have yes you do absolutely have some influence control no question about it but they come out born differently and you have to react to those differently and so if you grew up in a parenting style and um that you're accustomed to and it's really the only thing that you know and um you know, you have three different kids, and they don't all react the same way to the same stimulus. So what works with one totally doesn't work with the other. And if it's not in a parenting style that you're comfortable with, you won't know how to optimally parent that one that is very different. Hmm.
0: I always like hearing your perspective on things. I think you do a good job of articulating some, you know, a lot of times very difficult um, topics. So I've enjoyed it so far. Um, what, is the one, what is the one purchase? This is, a, this is kind of just the fun, crazy question that I always think is interesting. And this is actually a question that Tim Ferriss, I don't know if you ever listen to him, but he asks this question often. What is the one purchase of less than $100 that you've made in the last six months or, or recent past that has significantly changed your life?
1: Interesting. Um, You know, I didn't give a lot of thought to (laughs) to that, and um, there's my joking response, which is uh, I I I bought this for 99 cents, and I can't remember why. I just remember I think it just struck me as odd, and it was this uh, head massager, um, or, or really it's a scalp massager, and it's this little contraption i think its origination is 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 chinese and it has all these wires that come out and it's the most ridiculous looking thing and you you place it on your head and you kind of uh it fits like a baseball cap a little bit it doesn't look like a baseball cap but the the dome piece of it feels like it and it looks absolutely ridiculously silly like a spider sitting on top of your head and it feels amazing
0: <laughs> so
1: if you don't have one it's it's uh you, you've got to get one they're totally inexpensive and uh it, it just shen, sends shivers down your spine you know when you're using it so uh that's that's a life changer for everyone mm.
0: No, i know actually i know exactly what you're talking about natalie um introduced that to me that's a it, it is quite life-changing i would agree Um, and so then the la- or the next question, um, at this point in your life, uh, what does success look like to you personally?
1: You know, that's a fascinating one. When you're in, in a position where, um, where you're, you're essentially retired and all these choices are presented before you, it creates a really different mindset as to how you look at the world. You know, most people would answer that question is, oh, yeah, people want a sense of purpose. And so you want to do all these important things and help the world and and, and, and this kind of stuff. And those are all definitely part of the answer, I believe, you know. Um, but still, most people, including myself, there's still a little emptiness and a little hole there. It doesn't it doesn't fill everything. It does fill it some. I'm not saying that that's not part of the solution, but there's still some emptiness in there. And so. You know, other people will say, you know, pursue the things that you love and are passionate about. And that also is tremendously rewarding. But there's still a little empty hole there uh, as well. And as best as I can understand it or grapple with it up to this point, you know, to me, wealth and success gives you really it's, it's, it's freedom. Freedom to either do the things that. Uh, you want to do or not to be forced to do the things that you don't want to do. Um, but that freedom leads you to do what? To buy nicer homes, expensive cars, fancy things, um, or is it something else? And for me, what I've discovered, that, that little hole that exists, it's about relationships. And for me, what I'm starting to discover is that I want my wealth to support my ability to, to pursue and enrich the relationships that I have, whether it's with my kids in my family, um, whether it's with friends, um, it, it's really about the relationships. Because when those are rewarding and rich and strong uh, and you're creating valuable experiences with them, um, that's, that's when you feel the best about life, not just happy. Um, you know, not just happy, but feel, uh, but fulfilled. And as I'm again, I'm still working through this issue, but I feel like that's where real happiness and fulfillment lies, not in temporary happiness, not in things that are passionate, and rewarding, um, but where real fulfillment comes from is something related to that, and those other things are certainly part of the picture um, but I think the relationships is the piece that that really um, define uh, your fulfillment at the end of the day
0: mm. is that something that um well i'm I'm sure your idea and maybe I don't know if you have if you remember ever thinking about this question, but when you were you know, based on your your understanding of success today, is there anything you would tell your, you know, 20 year old self just coming out of college um, that would have um, that you would have liked to have known on this end of the spectrum?
1: <laughs> um, that's interesting. I You know, I haven't given that piece a lot of thought, but, you know, I think there's this notion that I want to impart on my kids that, yeah, go for it in life you know, strive, uh, whether it's professionally, whether it's in life experiences itself, go for it. Enjoy the ride, that type of thing. But then it's also balanced by, but remember who you are, remember who what's important, uh, you know, uh, uh, be humble so that you don't pursue those things that are based on your insecurities, that you're trying to plug these holes uh, and, and lead you down the wrong path. And that's, so easy when it comes to wealth and success. Most people are driven uh, off of some element of their ego. And that's something that I have to watch out for as well. I absolutely have an ego, but I'm constantly striving to understand the motivation of that ego. So I'm really chasing the things that are truly meaningful as opposed to, because once you get to, to the end of your ego, you realize that it's just your ego. So if you want, you know, power and fame and you achieve those things and you're well respected by everyone, you realize that you're still empty and alone. And in fact, the more wealth you have, the more lonely it gets because people can't identify with you. You know, they can't do the same things uh that you want to do. They're not concerned with the same things that you're now concerned with, and it becomes a really lonely place. Mm-hmm.
0: All right, um, last question, this is the fun one. What are your top three, and you can only have three, and you have to commit? Top three movie recommendations.
1: Oh boy, so uh, I, I'm happy to pick the top three, uh, but it comes with uh, a clarification point, and that is, Do I? is this sort of like the critical top three movies of all time? Uh, recommended for others or or selfishly my three favorite movies of all time whether they're smart stupid or otherwise
0: i i like the latter personally i'm curious what mike Choi likes
1: um okay if it's if it's uh selfishly i would say the three most enriching movies for me would probably be uh where you're jumping out of the seats, wanting to share it with other people, like I talked about earlier, uh, would be, uh, dances with wolves. Um, the Godfather and the last one would actually be Jaws. Jaws. I have
0: not seen Jaws. I need to, uh, I've never seen Jaws. I've heard the song, The, the music is like notorious. (laughs) Da, 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 da.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you this will ruin you from going swimming again, probably, but um and you have to watch it uh with this understanding that there's sort of this surface level uh and and all great movies have this right there's a surface level um in, you know interest element, you know it's this uh giant shark, and it's kind of cliche and corny now, of course. Um, and and you can appreciate it at that simple-minded sort of primal uh, level. But when you look at the movie making that's done and the, the reason and and why they did certain things, um, you know, there's some really interesting anecdotes from the making of Jaws where they wanted to get this shark that looked realistic that they can show, um, and they couldn't get it to look very realistic, and they had all kinds of mechanical problems, and so they ended up not showing the shark very often at all. And they relied on the music to represent the shark and create that suspense. And in, in, in hindsight, it ended up being the best thing that ever happened to them because it created so much more suspense and terror, really, because they weren't able to show the shark very often. And in fact, the cheesiest parts of the movie uh, are, the, are the times where you actually can see the shark. But really, it's movie, the movie-making elements of Jaws are phenomenal. Um, and so what's interesting about this list also is that at first blush, I, I, I'm sure for those uh, movie snobs out there, they're, they're not giving me much uh, credence at all because these are at, at, at some level are very simplistic, easy movies uh, to like. But what I love about them is when you watch it the third and fourth and fifth and maybe even 10th time, which I have, I think probably <laughs> in all these movies, uh, it's, fascinating the uh symbolism the uh subtle uh suggestions that are made the reason why they said certain things um uh the the, the cinematography that was used that were very very purposeful um and then you see the many complex layers um in, in these movies and yet at, at surface level they're just either fun or just have this sort of primal uh, appeal that is not very sophisticated at all. So um, anyway, Jaws, you have to see that it is uh, uh, again, you probably won't appreciate its brilliance. You'll be entertained the first time, but you won't see any of its genius until probably the third or fourth time. (laughs) Mm.
0: All right. I will. I'm going to have to add that to our uh, wish list. Natalie and I are going to watch that in the next couple of weeks. Um, anyways, Mike, I um, appreciate your time today. This was uh, very entertaining for me and I appreciate or thank you for being the um, one of the first guests on the show. But again, yeah, I pr- really, really appreciate you and your time today and for um, sharing.
1: Not at all, Chris. And again, uh, appreciate you having me on the show and uh... I will say that you're one of the most interesting people that I know. And so I'm looking forward to seeing uh, where the show goes from here. So <laughs> right, congratulations and, um, and good luck.
0: Thanks. And I'm going to find a way to, uh, we're going to exit the show with the, uh, the jaws soundtrack of the shark coming. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening. As always remember to check out Chris for show notes and the transcript of today's episode. Thank you for your attention, and we'll see you next time.